0: Good day, dear friends. Welcome to part 11. Yes, part 11 in our series on knowing God. Now, as hinted last week, in dealing with questions that come up, it is necessary to delve into matters which you will not customarily hear in everyday Bible studies. Now, these are things which I've had to deal with in seminars and different places in my travels, and I can assure you that they clear up a lot of things for a lot of people you will gain a level of understanding which will put you in a position to clear up other people's minds also, giving them peace. Our topic is the wars of Israel. I begin by illustrating God's dilemma with the following example as a story. Say there is a rural town which is close to a nature preserve area of forests where there are deer and antelope and elk and bear and other animals where they abound. Now most men living in the area never miss the hunting season, and they are eager to track down and hunt the animals. But one man, with the love of God in his heart, even for animals, he does not believe in killing the beautiful creatures of the forest. So he never goes with the other men who take their guns into the forest in the hopes of hunting and killing the animals, whether for food or just for fun. He is totally against killing the animals. Now this man has a son whom he is anxious to protect from the influence of his hunting neighbors. And so he constantly instills into his son the same love of wildlife that he had. And this father was glad to see his boy growing up having the same values and respect for life that he had. But he did not take away the son's freedom of choice. One day, After his son had become a teenager, some of the boys from school invited this man's son on a camping trip. He didn't know that there was hunting involved. They were hoping to get him to see the excitement and the thrill and the challenge of the hunt. So he got curious and tried it out for himself. Soon he became very enthusiastic about hunting and a few weeks later, being of age to have a gun, he went and purchased Brand new shiny hunting rifle of his own. And the son was eager to show it to his father. But with sadness in his heart, the father realized that his son had made his own choice. Now he was faced with the challenge of how to respond. Number one, he could disown his son and put him out of the house, basing his decision on the argument that they had opposite views about killing. And so either the gun had to go or the son had to go because he doesn't want a gun in the house. Or, number two, he could confiscate the weapon and demand that his son never go hunting again. Or, number three, he could quietly ignore the incident and pretend as if all were well when in fact it was bothering him a lot. Which would you do? Well, let's look at these three options more closely. The father loves his son dearly. He knows that if he throws him out of the house, it would be putting his son in more grave danger. He would have lost all influence over his son. He might end up on the streets, or in a gang, in a life of crime, in prison, or killed in gang violence, or by the police. So that option is out. Number two, if he tries to use the strong-arm tactic and forcefully confiscate the weapon and demand him never to hunt again, this would only fuel his determination to continue doing it. He could always get another gun and have his friends keep it. But that would destroy the trust and the bond in their relationship. And the father also knows that if he takes this option and his son obeys, it will not be genuine obedience because there will be resentment behind it that option too, he realizes, is out. Number three, if he tries to ignore it and pretend that everything was okay, he would be in denial. It would be eating him up on the inside and he would have no peace. And besides that, the son would see this as being hypocritical. So that would affect his influence over his son. So what does the father do? He rejects all three of these options and he chooses a fourth. He knows that his son is inexperienced and untrained in the use of a rifle and thus has placed himself and other people and wild animals in a position of great danger. He can accidentally harm himself or other people. And so the father decides to educate his son in the proper and safe way to handle the rifle that he has purchased. He knows that once started, he could no longer prevent the youth from using the gun. Yet given the chance, he might be able to save his son and others from the serious consequences of carelessness in using a gun. And so sadly, but with tender dignity, the father drew his son aside and clearly expressed his disappointment in the son's decision to get a gun. But he assured him that he would respect his decision fully. He then made his son aware that there are dangers associated with the use of such a weapon, and the only safeguard was to receive and obey a number of specific precautions. So, he patiently instructs the boy in the importance of looking beyond his target to ensure that no buildings or people Or farm animals are in the line of his fire. He instructs him on how to carry the weapon so that while he's climbing through a fence or under the bushes he does not, as so many people have done, shoot himself accidentally or shoot one of his friends accidentally. He also instructs him on the terrible potential for ricochets when the bullets glance off a rock or tree and strike an unintended target or a person he instructs his son on the necessity for waiting until he was in a close enough range before firing, as this will eliminate the possibility of only wounding the animal and allowing it to drag itself away to suffer a slow lingering death. In taking this fourth option, the father is not compromising his standards. He is using wisdom. He has already made it quite clear what he stands for, and he firmly stands by this. Yet he values his relationship with his son, and he knows he cannot force him to do what he, the father, wants and get true obedience. Because force will only produce resistance and produce a form of outward compliance, which is not true obedience, because it will be mingled with rebellion and resentment underneath. He doesn't take away the son's freedom of choice, as that would be to lessen his dignity as a human being. But he patiently works with him, despite his wrong choice, giving him instructions so as to minimize the damage he might do to himself and to others. And thus, in patience and mercy, he was seeking to save his son from the worst effects of his own choice. In doing this, At least the father gets to keep the son close to him so that he can continue to have an influence with him and the son will continue to respect his father. So this keeps the door open that over time, gradually, the father's influence will prevail and the son will gradually come to see that the father's original way is right and come back to that way eventually this is the only option that can bring about that kind of result. All the other three options would prevent any chance of preserving the relationship and changing the son's heart. And when it comes to the wars of Israel, this is the method God chooses. Any other option would destroy the father's influence with the son and possibly lead to the eventual destruction of the son. I must say, this option, Fourth option is similar to the way God works with his rebellious children. Sometimes the question is asked, if God is against violence, how is it that in the Bible we see Israel going to war and God is helping them and giving them victories in battle over their enemies? Now this is an important question and the explanation must be just as clear and grounded in the word of scripture and reason also. Reason that every honest heart can see. In answering this question, a few points have to be laid down first. Points that we can all agree on. Listen to these points more than once and think about them till you see them clearly. Number one, God is all wise. He sees perfectly the end from the beginning and therefore cannot make a mistake. He doesn't need to second guess himself, in other words. Number two, this means that God's will is perfect will. When God says this is the way to go, it means there is no better way. If someone comes along with a more perfect way, then that person would have to have some wisdom that God doesn't have. And that is impossible. Number three, and this is the most important point to understand. Whenever we see that God has made his will clear to a people, That this is what his will is. And then later on we see the opposite taking place. It does not mean that God has changed his mind or lowered his standard. It is a sure indication that the people have turned away from God's will to their own way. But God is still patiently working with them, trying to gradually bring them back to his original way. Now, sometimes to the person on the outside looking on, it might look like God is compromising his standard, just like with the story we just gave. But not so. God is using wisdom coupled with love and mercy in order to avoid giving them up to the full consequences of their choice. You know, many years later, after Old Testament times, when we get to the New Testament, when Jesus was arrested to be crucified... One of his disciples, in trying to defend Jesus, he grabbed a sword and tried to chop off the head of one of the Roman soldiers. He shifted and Peter cut off his ear instead. And Jesus picked up the ear and put it back on and it was healed. And we can read his words to Peter in Matthew 26 and verse 52. It says, Then Jesus said unto him, Put up again your sword in its place, for all those who take the sword shall perish with the sword. This was not some new rule. It is a principle of nature, a law of life. It was never God's intention for Israel to gain the land by warfare. He had given them clear instructions in this matter. Yet they went against his will and picked up the sword, and many, many years later, they themselves were driven out of the land by the sword of the Assyrians and the Babylonians. He who takes up the sword shall perish by the sword, Jesus said. So their fighting in wars was never God's idea. But due to lack of faith, they had chosen the sword and themselves later became victims of the sword, driven out by the sword. Let's go back to their deliverance from bondage in Egypt. God had delivered them from the mightiest nation in the world at that time and opened the Red Sea and led them across, thereby showing them his mighty power to protect and deliver them from any enemy. In all of this, the Israelites never had to lift a finger against their enemies. God was seeking to build their faith in him to win their trust in his ability to protect them. When they left Egypt, it is said, Exodus 13 and verse 17. And it came to pass, when Pharaoh had let the people go, that God led them not through the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, Lest maybe the people become afraid when they see war and they return to Egypt. So notice that it was not even God's intention for them to see warfare, much less to be involved in warfare. And over and over again, through Moses, God made it known that their protection was in his hand, that he would be their defender, that they would not need to fight. As they were fearful, standing there on the banks of the Red Sea, with the Egyptian army coming after them, what message did Moses tell the people from God? Exodus 14, 13 and 14. And Moses said unto the people, fear not. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he shall show to you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you shall see them again no more forever. The Lord shall fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. End of quote. Again we see that God was supposed to be their defender. They were to hold their peace, and God would protect them from their enemies, all of their enemies. Faith Activates God's power in their behalf. We're told in Exodus 14, 30 and 31 Thus the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead upon the seashore. And Israel saw the great work which the Lord did upon the Egyptians, and the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. Now, how were the Egyptians destroyed? Did God use his power in some way to destroy them? No, they were destroyed because God's power was withdrawn. Let me explain. The power of God was activated at the Red Sea because there were certain things in place. Let me illustrate. Sometime after Jesus began his public ministry and was doing many mighty miracles in many lands, he goes back to the little town of Nazareth in which he grew up. And notice what happened, Matthew 13, 57 and 58. It says, and they were offended in him. But Jesus said unto them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. And he did not do mighty miracles there because of their unbelief. Notice, many times Jesus goes to a town and when he left there, there was not one sick person left there. And yet he goes to Nazareth, and this was not the case. Why? The people were saying, oh, you know, this is Joseph, the carpenter's son who used to live down the street. We know him as a little boy growing up. He can't be no prophet. In other words, there was no faith in him, so there were no miracles performed. Many times when he healed people, he said to them, go your way, your faith has made you healed. God does not reward unbelief. The Bible says without faith, it is impossible to please God. Hebrews 11.6 So at the Red Sea, you had faith. You had the faith of Moses as God's representative on behalf of the people. And thus, the mighty power of God was activated, was demonstrated in the parting of the Red Sea. In other words, faith plus God's mighty power equals Red Sea parting. Everybody knows that the natural course of water is to flow together. But the fate of Moses activated the power of God and the sea parted. However, when the Israelites were on the other side, who were in the bed of the Red Sea racing on their horses and chariots towards them? The Egyptian army. What did Pharaoh say to Moses many times before? Who is this God of yours that I should obey him? I know not your God. So then, with Moses and Israel safely on the other side, was their faith there left in the open Red Sea? No. Which means, therefore, that the power of God could no longer be activated in keeping the sea open. So, as the people got to the other side, the sea did what water naturally does, as the power of God was withdrawn because there was no faith there to keep it activated in holding back the water, God withdrew his power and the water flowed back together again and the army of Egypt was drowned. No fate, thus no miraculous power exercised on their behalf, as we illustrated in the case of Jesus when he went back to Nazareth. So we see then that Israel only needed to believe in and trust God and they would be kept safe as their enemies would be driven out of the land. God had told Abraham 400 years earlier that his descendants would be enslaved in a strange land for 400 years, after which he would bring them out and give them the land of the Canaanites, the Amorites. The Amorites were going further and further away in rejecting God, and God was patiently seeking to win them. But he foresaw and told Abraham that they would fully reject him, filling up their cup of iniquity, at which point he would have to give them up, causing them to be driven out of the land. And at the same time, Israel, Abraham's descendants, would be coming out of captivity in Egypt to inherit their land. Notice what God said to Abraham. Genesis 15 verses 13 to 16. And God said unto Abraham, Know of a surety that your seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs and shall serve them and they shall afflict them for 400 years. And also that nation whom they shall serve, which is Egypt, will I judge. And afterwards they shall come out with great substance. And you, Abraham, shall go to your fathers in peace. In other words, you shall go to rest. You shall be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall come here again. In other words, your seed will come into this land. He says, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. So God foresaw that it would take 400 years for the Amorites to get so deep in their iniquities that he could do no more for them. And that this would correspond with the same time that Israel would be coming out of Egypt to inherit their land. So he had it all mapped out. These people had fully rejected God and served devils. And Israel needed not to fight, not to go to war to gain the land. Again, we read Exodus 23 from 27 to 30. God is speaking through Moses. It says, I will send my fear before thee. In other words, Israel, my fear will be in the hearts of the people. They will be afraid. They will be running. They will turn their backs to you. Notice what it says. I will send my fear before thee and will destroy all the people to whom thou shalt come. And I will make all thine enemies turn their backs unto thee. And I will send hornets before thee. That is like wasps will just rise up in the land. They will not be restrained. I will send hornets before thee, which shall drive out the Hivites and the Canaanites, the Hittites, from before thee. I will not drive them out from before thee in one year, lest the land become too empty and the beasts of the fields multiply in the land. But little by little, I will drive them out from before thee until you are increased and inherit the land. Notice who would be responsible for getting the people out of the land. God would. Again in Deuteronomy, we read of Moses telling them, Deuteronomy 1 and verse 30, The Lord your God who goes before you, he shall fight for you according to all that he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. So it is very clear that it was never God's intention or purpose for Israel to be involved in fighting wars against their enemies. So then, if we see them fighting battles later on, is it that God had a change of heart? God said, you know what? I was wrong before. This is a better idea. Is that what happened? No, because that would show that God is fallible. It can only be that they chose to adopt the ways of the other nations around, and God was merely patiently staying close to them, working with them, with the purpose of seeking to bring them back to his original way, even as the father was doing with the son in the illustration given earlier at the beginning. This is exactly what happened. After crossing the Red Sea, the very next day, they saw the dead bodies of the Egyptians washed upon the seashore, and they armed themselves from the weapons strapped onto these dead soldiers. They took their weapons. We read in Exodus 14 and verse 30, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead upon the seashore. They were not allowed to have weapons in Egypt. They were slaves. They did not leave Egypt with any weapons. And there were no factories in the wilderness to go and buy weapons. And yet, just shortly after their deliverance, by chapter 17, we see them fighting in battle against another nation. The moment they picked up the sword, it was an indication of lack of faith in God's continued protection. They had seen the mighty power of God in their deliverance through ten plagues in Egypt, and yet at the Red Sea, as the Egyptian army approached, they started complaining to Moses about, why didn't you leave us in Egypt to die in Egypt? They had seen the sea parted, And they crossed to safety and just three days later they started murmuring and complaining to Moses about water. God worked a miracle through Moses and they had more than enough water and yet time after time they showed their unbelief and lack of trust by murmuring and complaining, even threatening at times to kill Moses and return back to Egypt. Yet God was patiently enduring their unbelief and their ungratefulness. When they finally picked up the sword, it showed that they had no faith that God would continue to protect them. You know, they were saying, just in case he doesn't come through, we have to have our own backup plan. They had shown a lack of faith in God's ability to protect them further on. God had various options. He could say, well, if you don't trust me, forget you all, and then just leave them alone to fend for themselves. But that would be like putting them out of the house, as the father chose not to do in our story earlier on. They were surrounded by many hostile nations who wanted to see them destroyed. And without God's protection, Israel would not last long. And this was what Satan wanted to happen. They would soon get wiped out completely. And the promise which God gave to Abraham of the Messiah, who would be born through his seed to defeat Satan and to become the Savior of the world, would never have been fulfilled. If God had sent his angels to confiscate their weapons, they would not have relinquished their weapons willingly. Rebellion and resentment would still be in their heart. That's number two. And number three, if God had just ignored it and pretended it was okay, he would be encouraging them in their lack of faith and sending the wrong message that he condoned their choice to pick up the sword. But God made it clear that this was not his way and that to choose the sword was a lack of faith in him and that the use of the sword brutalizes and hardens the conscience of the one who uses it to chop his fellow human beings to pieces. It makes them more animal-like in nature like brutes, losing the tenderness of the heart and the sense of sacredness of the human life. And yet, just like he patiently worked with the Amalekites for over 400 years and other Canaanites for hundreds of years, he stayed with the Israelites, working with them also, still helping them while giving them instructions in the conduct of their warfare in order to minimize the damage to themselves and to others. He instructed them not to torture their enemies who they captured. And he revealed to them when their enemies were scheming to attack and many other things he did to help them. This was in no way to compromise his principles, but this was the exercise of divine wisdom. They were given freedom of choice. They made a corrupted, perverted choice, which would eventually lead to much harm upon themselves. But he could not force their will. They had made their choice, and in the long run, they would have to suffer the consequences of their choices. Yet God was still patiently working with them as a father to a son within the context of their own harmful choices which they had made, seeking by any means to turn them back to his ideal way of trust in him, allowing him to be their defense. By the time we get to Samuel the prophet, we see that they had fully rejected God's governmental system and chosen monarchy to be ruled over by a king like the other nations. And they had rejected God's judicial system and chosen to use the system of judging and execution of the other nations. And they had rejected God's method of defense and chosen to fight battles like the other nations. As Samuel pleaded with them to go back to God's way, here is what they responded. 1 Samuel 8, verses 19 and 20. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and they said, No, but we will have a king over us, that we may also be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. So notice they had rejected God's system. God says when they chose a king, he told Samuel, they are not rejecting you, they are rejecting me. So they were rejecting God's governance. They were rejecting God's judicial system. They said, our king may judge over us and go out before us and fight our battles. This should make it very clear that in their choice of warfare, God was not condoning them in it, but merely working with them patiently in their perverted choice, in mercy, seeking to turn them back around, while still providing his protection and help, and also working towards the fulfillment of the promise of the Messiah who would come through their nation. Understand, dear friends, When God is prevented from saving people in one area, he will still exercise his saving power in whatever possible avenues remain. Like the father in the opening story, God too had been placed in a similar position by the determination of his children to take up weapons of destruction. He also gave them a solemn warning that his effort to save them from the worst effects of what they have chosen does not mean that he has changed in his ways. He says, I am the Lord, I change not. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6. He says, I'm the same yesterday, today and forever. Hebrews 13 verse 8. He says, in him there is no variableness, neither a shadow of turning. James 1 The father in our story did not have to change his position on the issue of killing or the use of weapons in order to instruct his son on safety measures or to protect him from danger. Neither did God have to change his position in regard to these same issues when Israel picked up the sword in order to save them from being cruel users of the sword. Now suppose that when this father, in the beginning of the story, was showing his son and instructing him the proper way to use the gun so as not to hurt himself or anyone, Suppose one of the villagers happened to come down the road as his training session was in progress and from a distance all he sees is the father instructing his son in the use of firearms. What conclusions do you think he would come to? He would certainly run back to the rest of the village and announce to the rest of them, his hunting buddies, that the father is now one of them, a gunman. As proof, he would give his personal eyewitness account that he saw the father showing the son how to use a gun. But this would be so wrong. This would be to misjudge the father. And so God has been misjudged too. Many have read the Bible and they have read about Israel going to battle and God giving them victories against their enemies. And so men have taken these facts and drawn their own conclusions. But while the facts are correct, the conclusions drawn are completely wrong. They have declared with great satisfaction that God has become one of them, a destroyer. But they could not be more mistaken. Understand, dear friends, David was said to be a man after God's own heart. And yet when he wanted to build a temple dedicated to the service of God, God said, no, you can't build my house. Here is what David told his son Solomon. 1 Chronicles 22, 7 and 8. And David said to Solomon, my son, my son, As for me, it was in my mind to build a house unto the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, You have shed blood abundantly, and you have made great wars. You shall not build a house unto my name, because you have shed much blood upon the earth in my sight. If the shedding of blood disqualified David from such a sacred work, then, dear listener, This should convince us that wars and bloodshed is not, never was, and never will be God's way. But man's way, put in place of God's way. Man says, slaughter your enemies. God says, love your enemies and I will be your defense. We all have to choose and face the consequences of our choice. Dear friends, may God bless you all and give you a clear understanding in these matters. Have a great week.